welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Think about changing that to the Tao of Our Misunderstanding because it really is our misunderstanding, not our understanding. You notice I've underscored, I think, either either our or understanding. One of those I did to make it clear that our understanding is not what's important. That's not a typo. Any announcements, go to buddyc.org. We've got a lot of good resources there for you. Meetings online, other things going on. We've got a daily devotional there if you want to sign up for it. That's really my accountability to take what we're learning with the Tao and put that into a daily devotional format. And that's going to continue. And then eventually we'll publish a, a daily devotional book like the Daily Reflections. Been working on all of that, which is good. Good to have you guys today. Today we have an interview with Lou. Lou is our resident Alanon. He's our token Alanon. Is that it, Lou? It seems like we've got all the addicts, and then we've got Lou on the flip side, which brings a lot of perspective into this. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Glad to be here, buddy. And I think maybe there are some that are dual members, dual citizens. Yes, yes. And Alanon, but I guess I am the sole Alanon. Lou, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your your progress through recovery? Why are you here? There's lots of reasons, I guess. One of them in terms of my recovery has to do with my son, technically, I guess, my stepson, who is an alcoholic. He started drinking unbeknownst to his mother and I when he was about 14. And by the time he was 21, it was pretty serious and I think at last count, I think I have, I think I have the count at something like he'd been in six jails in six different counties here in Michigan, where we're from. And I think his mom had it at eight. So I'm not sure who's right, but, um, I remember we were at my wife's business and we were trying to find out about some inpatient place. And I called this one place and the guy that was the intake person at the, um, at the place of recovery, ask a really important question. He says, do you want your, do you, does your son want to come or do you want him to come? <laughs> and I said, no, he doesn't really, he's not really interested in coming. He says, then you and your wife need to go to Al-Anon. And that's what we've done. And that's made the world of difference for us. So that's what got us into recovery got me into recovery. The need for it goes way back. We Al-Anon people, we have a tendency to be saviors and martyrs and all of those kinds of things. And I know there's scientific research that shows there's a genetic connection or genetic predisposition to alcohol, but I don't know if there is one for those of us that are in Al-Anon, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so for me, it goes back to being raised in a religious family, really pretty strict religious family, but at the same time, it was a very loving family. And church was that way too, depending on the minister. 
when I was like seven or eight years old, I got it in my head that I needed to be just like Jesus, which is, he's a hard act to follow. (laughs) So I tried to be perfect and tried to be really kind and gentle and all those kinds of things all the way through, through high school and growing up. And I was, I was a caretaker for people. I was the listening ear. I ended up becoming a counselor. So I guess that was early training, but what I found after I looked back on it in recovery, go ahead, buddy. Do you have a question? Yeah. First of all, we did not define what Al-Anon is. We don't talk oh, sure. about Al-Anon too often. So maybe it'd be good. What is Al-Anon, Luke? Al-Anon is a recovery program for the friends and family of alcoholics. Our sense is that if you have anybody you know, um, as an alcoholic, if you're, it doesn't have to be your parents, it doesn't have to be your children, it doesn't have to be your spouse. It could be your great grandfather was an alcoholic, but you see how that has transformed the family in a negative way. And very much we follow the 12 steps, just like Alcoholics Anonymous. And everything's confidential for us. What we say there stays there. We follow some, we have some of the same slogans. So it's very much like Alcoholic Anonymous. Anonymous in terms of the the bones of it. Where we differ is that we really work on ourselves and our need to control the alcoholic. So we one of our phrases is we didn't cause it, we can't cure it, and we don't control it. So it's still the step one that we're powerless over alcohol. And that's a thing for us is because we try to take control not of the alcohol, but of the alcoholic. Okay. Yeah. Didn't cause it, can't cure it, and cannot control it. Cannot control it. Hmm. And we try to do all those. We blame ourselves for the alcoholic's behavior. If I, I, I remember my wife saying in one of our, when we were, it was nice to go through it together. And she was, she said, she remembers that there was a time that our son wanted her to take him ice fishing and she didn't take him ice fishing. And maybe if she'd taken him out ice fishing. He, he would have bonded better and he wouldn't have been alcoholic. We think we cause it sometimes by our behavior. If only I'd act different or if I was more kind or gentle or whatever, then the alcoholic wouldn't drink. We try to control it, hide bottles, dump things out. I remember driving our son to, under protest to AA meetings. I tried to control it that way. And that we just have to figure out we didn't cause it, we didn't can't cure it and we don't control it. I remember one of one of our members saying when her alcoholic called to get bailed out of jail, tendency is to want to do that to help him out. And she said, did he it was us actually, we when we did it. She said, did he call you when he asked permission or ask your help when he went went out drinking? No. <laughs> He's not asking you then Maybe the priorities are wrong. You didn't, you're not responsible for it, is what they were telling me. I had the same um, issues with my son. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go to Al Anon, but I came from the AA side on that, mm-hmm. knowing I learned those things in AA, but I could see how it would be beneficial to the alcoholic who has other alcoholics in their life, which is very common mm-hmm. to find a good Al Anon meeting. Yeah, and quite frequent, as I said before, we'll have people who are both in AA and 
and in Al-Anon. Now, oftentimes we met the same place at the same time to make it convenient for spouses or for tribal right. members and those kinds of things. But I know some of our members attended other AA meetings and then attended our Al-Anon or would switch off once in a while. Yeah. And I've noticed too from a lot of stories I've heard that in the beginning, people go to Al-Anon thinking they're there to help someone in their family and come to find yeah. out they're an alcoholic themselves. Uh, yeah, or they come to Allen and think they're going to get the right cure. Finally, somebody that knows how to cure my alcoholic loved one. And yes. We, and lots of times alcoholics think we're telling stories about them and Al-Anon. And what we're talking about is ourselves and how the sickness we have in terms of trying to control what we're powerless over. Doesn't that so resonate when we learn in the steps that... We have such a little control over all of life when we, I come in thinking I control all these things and then I find out I don't. And it's so much more about living life than it is alcohol. I could see how that would resonate if you're open to the program and not an alcoholic, how beneficial it would be just in itself. Yes, because I think oftentimes people have been Alan on it's been over 30 years for me. You get to a point where it's not really, it's no longer and hasn't for quite some time been about the alcoholic being the trigger or what brings you in that week. It's work or it's something else that happened or it's your own stinking thinking that brings you in. And it doesn't, it, like AA, the steps apply to everything, every part of life. And that's the spiritual nature of it. Yes. Yes. What a gift the program's been. Yeah. in all the ways that it benefits us. Yes, and I've heard one of our longtime members said when she first came in, somebody said they were a grateful member of Al-Anon. She says, how can you be grateful that you're coming here? After a while, you find out why they're grateful for yes. the membership in Al-Anon and the changes it's made in their life. Yes, I can see that. You're only the first step and the last step mention alcohol. Yeah. And that there's a reason for that. Unlike we do in the Tao of our understanding, you can you can take out the word alcohol and put it something else in there, and it's equally true. Yes, usually starts with that thinking. Yeah, have you that's right. have you ever done that? Looked at I think it's more about alcoholism. That first the, that first paragraph that's used a lot. I think it's that's what's used in meetings. Some <clears throat> on page. <clears throat> 30. It says most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. Going through that paragraph, if you change the drink to think, it says most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real problem thinkers. No person likes to think he's bodily or mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our thinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could think like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his thinking is the great obsession of every abnormal thinker. <laughs> That's exactly right, I think. And it's and part of that for me, buddy, is that the thinking is that it's not spiritual thinking. It's not of a spiritual nature. It's a worldly thinking or it's a um, it's a human thinking that's based 
in whatever it's based in logic or instinct or whatever, but it's not based in spirit. And that's the kind of thinking that gets me into trouble. I can yeah. overanalyze and I can, I can get confused on all kinds of things. But when I co- go to the spiritual side, it's not too confusing. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Getting out of the way and letting life appear before us, right? Yes, yes. And well, in the, with the Alan on the shadow side of the caretaking and being that kind person and that looks out for others is, at least for me, was the resentment that came with people not acknowledging that. <laughs> in my mind, I was this great guy. I'm sure to my classmates when I have my class reunion this year or people that in my professional life they might have seen some of that good guy, but they didn't celebrate it as much as I thought they should. I was really trying hard. <laughs> you're not, it's not, it's not good enough that you're behaving the right way. You have to have the recognition and the acknowledgement of it. It's, at least for me, that was the judgmental. I'd be on one side, I'd be very empathetic and tolerant and non-judgmental of people. But then on the other high side, I would resent them if they didn't judge me highly. So yeah. the sickness to them. Isn't that, though, her whole issue? I had uh, a sponsee that I was talking with, and he, we were talking about being helpful and how we could have the wrong motivations mm-hmm. being helpful. And his argument was that he he may not be helpful out of the right motivations. He's not selfless in what he's doing. I said, you'll know soon. I said, because you'll start getting aggravated when people don't respond the way you want them to. Then you'll know that your motivations weren't pure. And that's what you're talking about. That's right. That's that's the uh, what's the phrase. Expectations are premeditated resentment. Yes, yes. You expect somebody to do something, that's a part of control, I guess. It's a part of thinking that you can control it through your own expectations that people are going to do what you want them to do. And then if you're resentful afterwards. And we had to go through that as a family because if the one son asked us for something, we had to do this internal computation of if it was one of the other kids, what would we do? If, the, if a non-alcoholic child came and said, could you do this for me, would we do it? And if the answer was yes, then we would. Just, if it was money, it would just be okay. We're not expecting this back. And so when the alcoholic son would ask us something, we'd have to do that mental gymnastics of, okay, is, are we enabling him or would we do it normally just out of being a parent? And the real answer was, if it wasn't, if you had no expectations, then it was probably good either way. But we would go through that kind of a thing to check our, check ourselves, our, our own boundaries of where our boundaries were as a couple dealing with kids and our own individual boundaries on what was appropriate and what's not. Because boundaries is a real issue for Al-Anon people. We're always crossing other people's boundaries and letting them cross our bounds. That's a big thing for us is to be and my observations of other members, what they've told me is this boundary thing. What's ours? What isn't? What do we own and what don't we own? In AA, there's a saying about that using the hula hoop. We have a guy, Mike, you know, he often 
would mention that anything outside of my hula hoop is none of my business. Yeah. And I need to be careful with what's within because a lot of it's not my business either. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so how did coming to Al-Anon change you, Lou? I know over time that you've probably seen that. How about when you first came in and progressively, what did you notice was some of the biggest changes in your life from Al-Anon? The most dramatic change for me that I could see immediately at the time was when I gained some serenity. And as soon as I had that feeling of serenity, I wasn't trying to fix anything. It wasn't any of my business. I didn't have to worry about it. It wasn't mine to do. I could just be. That snagged me hard. (laughs) I liked that an awful lot. And so that was that feeling of grace and of peace and just feeling that harmonious sense within myself when I let so, let go of so much, that feeling changed me because I wanted it. I hadn't had that kind of inner relaxation of not pushing, of not help, not trying to control things or change things, make things better, be a certain kind of person. Um, I liked it. So when things would upset me and I would notice I was losing my serenity, that would that motivated me to take a to, to be at a meeting, to doing readings, meditating. I'm not really a meditator, more of a contemplator. Getting to that place again where I'm shutting off all of my internal talk and just getting to that level of being. That when I felt that first sense of serenity it was the world changed for me you sound a lot like me lou as far as thinking that the whole world was my responsibility to manage and take care of Mm -hmm. all that pressure before al-anon i'm curious because that's what i ran from that was the reason i drank was not to feel that heaviness yeah and you can you're just falling it's like i said growing up thinking i needed to be like jesus you're falling short Every day when you're trying to control things, you just can't. It's a failure. It's a failure game. And it wears on you. Wear wore on me. I was anxious. I get really socially anxious. I I I could get up and talk in front of 500 employees, but if I we had a everybody went to the grab some coffee or donuts afterwards, I like I didn't want to be there. So I imagine that, and you've been in Al-Anon how long now? Uh, it's been 30, 30, wow. two years, 32 years. You In Al-Anon, you work the steps, you go through your fourth step and your eighth and ninth and all those things, just like we do in AA. Yes. Did you find the relief from fear? What Was that a, a game changer for you? Because it was for me to realize that all of my defects or fear in some form. Did that speak to you as well in that way? Yes. And how the fears were self-created, how I built my own fears. I remember one of the, one of the, I remember one of my making amends, one of my was, I was really, I had a landlord one time and my wife was, my then wife was pregnant and the heat was always going out and it was 
cold in February and snowy in Michigan, and I got a pregnant wife, and the heat's going out. And I was just, I was, I held that resentment for years and years with that guy that wouldn't, wouldn't take care of that. And it was doing the four step and in that process when I realized what I was really angry about was my inability to fix it myself. <laughs> I didn't know how to fix it. So I put that on him. And it was out of my own fear of recognizing my errors or my shortcomings that I built this this whole resentment, this whole thing up about other people. And then I started thinking about how often do I do that when I'm angry at someone else or I'm upset. I remember another one, there was a, I was really upset with the current, whoever the current president was because they weren't doing something in, with some starvation in Africa. And I was really pissed off about it. And it was my guy, whichever, whatever president it was, it was my guy my party and he wasn't doing anything about it and then i thought to myself gee lou have you made any donations to that and what have you done about that and and then i realized okay i'm just projecting and spinning things out on other people when really it's my own fear of my own inadequacies and my own fear of not being good enough that's generating that dislike of other people i'm not sure that answered your question but it does I like the I like where this conversation's going too. With you having a counseling background, what when you came into Al Anon and as you worked the program, what were some of the tools that you were resistant to working? Are there anything particular you said, there's no way that could benefit me? Why in the world would I need to do X? But yet once you did, you found that it worked. I think, buddy, it was like a recognition when I came in that it was the counseling background was useless to me. Didn't matter that I had this academic knowledge or this practice, practice knowledge. And it changed how I worked with people with disabilities. And my job with people with disabilities was to help find a kind of job that they could do that was compatible with their disability. Or if we trained them, could they do the job? So it wasn't like therapy per se, although a lot of people had mental illness. There were, I had people on my caseload who were substance abusers. Um, it changed my thinking about how I worked with them, but it really, from a personal standpoint of having that background and that training and that experience doing it was not helpful to me at all. It didn't cover the things that... I needed for myself and therapy and counseling. I had received some counseling too. That didn't do it for me either, although it's valuable for other things. So that was the recognition was that I thought, okay, I'm trying to control things and I got this degree and I work with, work with people with problems. So I'll just, I'll go there and I'll figure this out real quick and pull those tools in. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That Show me the that. formula. Show me yeah. the formula and I can do it. That's good. That's um, good. But it's the, the, that's the spiritual nature of it. Actually, my my undergraduate degree in religious is in religious studies, so that helped me more. And that that what what brought me to the Tao side of things is that I have that background too of world religions and of that interest in spirituality going back to my young church days, and then through my interest of, of working 
of studying and being involved and exposed to Asian religions and African and American religions and Australian, all these different kinds of spiritual paths, that was more helpful to me than counseling because I, I could start, I had some things to draw from in terms of thinking of it spiritually. And it continues to this day with, to me, it's, there's so many commonalities between whatever spiritual tradition there is that it like buoys me up. It lifts me up. Yes. It writes the ship. Yes. Yeah. That's for me. I think the fundamental amongst all of those different religions, if I can get down to God is love in that practice, whatever that practice is, then that seems to be the foundation that is actually, that actually works for me is if I can get down and find that in that practice and then all these practices seem to point in the same direction if if you stay with it for a while yeah did you ever study now we haven't talked about this off recording i don't know i'm putting you on the spot did you ever study any of the nag hammadi or any of the gnostic books that weren't included in the canonized new testament yes yes i have um and Elaine Pagel was one of the ones that has written the most about him. And I Elaine heard her name, you know, last name is P-A-G-E-L, I think. Elaine, okay. and she's done a lot of translations and she's done a lot of the research on the, on those. And I had a chance to hear her speak one time about her experiences with those. Yes, those are interesting. And just from the Christian history thing, Back in on the before the Council of Nicaea, it was all up for grabs in terms of what constituted the canon of documents, and those were included. And there was a big fight on on whether they should be included going forward or if they should be excised from from the Gospels. They should be included in the, the official <laughs> text or not, and they got booted out. But they were contenders with just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at a time at a time in church and in, in history of Christianity. It, uh, There's also political reasons for that, some of that, and spiritual arguments and heresy you know, thoughts of heresy and, and those kinds of things. It's interesting though, as much as we see God being manipulated for political reasons for control we see though that thread of of real love of something genuine in the middle of a lot of things that may not be as genuine and that's what's made the difference for me i really like the gospel of thomas is one of my favorites we might we might study that sometime not in the regular meeting but in another i'll uh, i'll make sure you get invited if you want to okay yeah on that conversation I like that. I like those discussions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a reason they call it alcoholic spirits. <laughs> yes, because it, we're hungry for the we're hungry for the real spiritual stuff. We're hungry for something that's beyond the day to day doldrums of work and of raising kids and of living in in our society, whatever society that might be. And people look for that in lots of different places. I find personally that my 
my my difficulty now is in eating. <laughs> I, I overeat, and and I notice that when my spiritual path is good, I don't consume as much. I don't try to fill that hole with food when I'm taking time out and tending to my spiritual side of things. So there's so much of what we what works against us is trying to whatever fill whatever gap that is for people. For my for our son that's alcoholic, as long as he was in a he didn't he never went to AA, he went to a faith based recovery program. And not that I think AA isn't, but he didn't like the higher power thing. It wasn't God, so he didn't go. And as long as he was involved in his fundamentalist church, he wasn't drinking. And that was a better I saw that as just the new drug, but it was a lot better one in alcohol, so we didn't complain about it. But yeah, that, it's out of that it's out of that um that he, that human need to to have some indwelling of the spirit, however you see that, however the divine coming in you that we want and that we that makes us fully human and not having that drives us all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. My opinion. Yeah, that's good. So over the course of time that you've been in Al Anon, how how did those beliefs of the higher power change for you from the beginning or your perceptions? We've talked about that already, how you perceive your responsibility. And over time, how has that changed to what where are you at now? I'm in some weird Christian Taoist kind of naturalist mix of things, I guess, buddy. The Christian side of me, that's so ingrained in my upbringing and my, my hundreds of years of tradition that it's baked in. So I'm never going to lose that. I'm never not going to think about that. It's hardwired in as much as those kinds of things can be hardwired. But I see it differently now in that from the kind of the Taoist thing and I see a harm as harmony, as love and as harmony. I think of it naturally too, because I sit here and we feed the birds and every, and it's fun to watch the birds. And then all of a sudden, and I'm on this Facebook bird thing and all of a sudden a hawk will come in and take one of those little birds I've been watching. And some of the people on the bird group or get all upset about that and to me it's beautiful it's the natural it's harmony it's what's nature doesn't care about that kind of stuff doesn't think it's good doesn't think it's bad it is what it is and there is some balance and some harmony and some beauty i think to it so when i look at the trees and they blow in the wind that's that helps me get to my serenity i don't know how to explain it other than that buddy it's just like the grace of god the Holy Spirit, if you want to put it in Christian words, but for, or if you want to put it in Taoist words, it's the Wu Wei, the uncarved block. It's um, just letting the flow flow and appreciating it and being grateful for it. So it's less pers- person or I don't, it's not the big guy in the sky with the white beard anymore, like it was when I was a kid. Um, it's just more of a, acknowledgement that the world's okay. It's all right. That's going to be good. It's going to be bad. That's part of the mix. 
and there's something really beautiful and intelligent and think about intelligent design or just it's just beautiful whatever it is underneath that so that's where i'm at now our words are not adequate for describing this we're not adequate to describe them that's right <laughs> maybe a better way to say that i don't know when i first studied some of the native american religions and i actually worked with in the native community for a couple of years it was like all this really oh pitiful me poor i'm a i'm just a little person i'm just a little animal in all this big world and it rubbed me the wrong way but now i'm it was the surrender thing it was like hey <laughs> i'm just a speck in the sea um, yeah yeah and, and that takes the pressure off of me when I, it, it's not that I look at myself as being less than. Selfless is just thinking of me less. Mm. So it's that kind of a thing. And I experienced that same piece too when I stopped trying to control. It wasn't things getting fixed the way I thought they should be. I would, ha- I could have peace regardless of the situation if I let go and stopped the control and the expectations. And that doesn't mean I don't every day screw up and swim against the current and make all kinds of mistakes and not do what I want to do, not be the, be what I want to be in terms of that regard. But that doesn't matter either. (laughs) doesn't matter that it, okay, okay, so I goofed up, I screwed up. The world goes on and uh, the, the river flows. And for me, Lou, I'm trying to look at that less as a screw-up and just as it is because there's nothing really to compare this moment to. This is something I learned, I heard on the Zen of, is it the Zen of Everything? I think it is, is the podcast. It is super good. I have to get it off of Spotify. I'm an Android guy, and I can't get it on my other, uh, uh, my aggregators. And it's the Zen of everything. And it's very good. It's a, a sensei in Japan. He's from New York and they have some really good conversations. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing he was talking about. Lou was that there is not another 619, 23, 10, a.m. Central time, Eastern time that there's ever going to be again. Right. So there's nothing to compare this moment to. And that's part of the. My my inner nerd comes out on this, buddy, because that's part of the thing with the Gnostic Gospels, the Thomas and the others, is Gnostic, Gnostic, or can't say it now, Gnosis is, means knowing. So the, the Gnostic, <laughs> there it is, Gnostic Gospels were about an inner knowing, a secret knowing that the other people don't have, but this internal group, inside group had that Jesus taught this inside group, the, some of these secrets. One of those seems to be, for my reading, is that the coming of the kingdom is now. Um, this year, it, the moment, um, the moment is the etern- is the eternity, and it's the eternal the now, right? Of God. Yeah, yeah. That actually, one of the quotes that I like from the Gospel of Thomas. There's a book of Thomas and a Gospel of Thomas. So mm-hmm. we're talking about the Gospel of Thomas. They asked. Jesus, when he was going to return, because they were looking for a physical kingdom the whole time. 
and not a spiritual kingdom. And he said that it's all, it has already come. You just can't see it. Mm-hmm. It's already here. And he said that if you think it's in the air, the birds will get there before you. Things of that nature. He was talking about that it's right here. And the Lord's Prayer talks about that too. Because how does that go? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The word heaven there is the word for spiritual dimension. Doesn't necessarily mean it's way off. It could be right here. Yeah, that's right. And that's, um, and, um, that's how I think the Holy Spirit comes into that side of things too, because that Jesus says, I'll leave you a comforter. I'll leave you a teacher. I'll leave you a counselor, whatever the right word is that's translated. And that I think is the, be the, I think what the, for me at least, what that part, that personification of spirituality of the divinity is what helps me get to that place of grace and in the moment. And that's all there is, is the moment. The past, the past we've, it's not there. <laughs> the future isn't here either. It's just the moment. We try so hard to work for tomorrow to be, quote, better than today. Yeah. And that was ingrained in me too, because my, I'm of the generation just after the Great Depression. And so my dad had, at any given time, had two or three different jobs. His brothers all had at least two jobs. His sisters all had two jobs. They were working, they were home, they worked at home and then they had a, one had a beauty salon, one worked at a grocery store. They all had, they were all doubling up and tripling up. And that was my internal expectation. We'll go to college, you get a job, you get promoted, you get promoted, you look for the next thing, you get promoted to that. And it, I followed that path right to the top. And then it was like, okay, what's next? What's the next thing that you shoot for? And coming into retirement, it's really hard. I still do a couple of things for money just because it's, I can't quite give that up for some reason. Yeah, that's always wanting to get to that next level to do things a little better so that it's better for the family. When in reality, uh, that does not, our better is not within those things. We think it's something that we're achieving when it's really not. And, I, and don't you think, and I think maybe we've talked about this, that during COVID, people started to come to that realization that this job isn't really this working 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week isn't really doing it for me. It takes me away from my family. The kids want you. They don't want the things. Yeah. They might enjoy the things for a while, but they want you. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. There was one, this came to mind when I started challenging my religious thinking that was ingrained in me from the beginning from his blood like you mm-hmm. i heard rob bell ask a question that i thought was interesting he said let's say you have these three foundational beliefs that your whole spirituality is based on what if you were to definitively find out one of those were not true for example Okay, in Christianity that Jesus died on the cross. What if we found out definitively that he didn't die on the cross, that he lived through that? As some believe, there's a tomb in Kashmir 
where they say he's buried that he came back and taught there after the crucifixion until his death. And there's things like that. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just <laughs> saying that could you have a relationship with a higher power in some way that if you found out any of your foundational beliefs were not true, would it just throw everything out or but would that just make nothing real or would it affect your spirituality in any way? That was a tough question for me because I realized how much of my beliefs were based on an act and not have anything to do with love at all. Nothing to do with what we believe God to be, but it was more of this structure that I had been taught that would really challenge everything. So I had to do a lot of introspection with that. What that makes me think, and I don't know if it's true, buddy, but what that makes me think about myself is that all of the pillars could go away and I would be left with love. Yeah. And if somehow that could be somehow proven to be wrong, even that last pillar went away, then where I would want to be, where I think I would be, (laughs) who knows what happens, is that I would still think that even though I knew it was wrong because it's the best way for me to live, to to be in the world is to think that way. So even if it was, even if it's false, I mean, there's that book by Kent Keith, I think, if you love people and they're ungrateful and they kick you in the teeth, love them anyway. I'm probably getting his, his commandments wrong, but it's that idea. It's phenomenologically, so to speak. It's the best, for me, it's the best way to live. I'm more whole and happier if I live with that belief, even if I can't prove it or if somebody else can somehow demonstrably prove that, no, it's not raw, it's not love, it's, it's, um, fit, you know, survival of the fittest or whatever. Yeah. I yeah. think that's still where, at this point in my life, that's where I feel like I, I would go. But isn't that the attraction with Taoist philosophy? Because we're not talking about Taoist religion. We're not talking about becoming a Taoist. What we're talking about is the idea that all of these different sayings that we that were written 2,500 years ago are so applicable today. And they apply to any that I found, any God belief that's a love-based practice. Because that's what day is. Dao De Ching Te is virtue. So mm. it's talking about a way of virtue. And that makes sense when you think about the whole universe and the universe is expanding. So virtue would be that flourishing and the way that we tie back into that flourishing. Because if the universe was not flourishing, it would not be growing. It would not be surviving. Yeah, and it's interesting, too. And I've heard people uh, when we meet talk about this, I think, and that's the Stoics, a non-Christian tradition, really. It's a philosophy, the Stoicism, and the connection between, in many cases, between Stoicism and the Tao. And as I've understood it from some of the things that I've read, or one interpretation of it is that the Stoics get there through through the intellect, through thinking, in terms of what just makes sense in terms of how to live in the world, and not having expectations and 
and not trying to push things is a good way to live in the world from a rational point of view from their perspective. Whereas the Taoist is not so, it's not about rational thinking. It's more about, say, it was gut instinct or more coming more from the heart or from the gut than from the brain, but still intersecting in so many different places. Yeah. It's like the my my favorite one of my favorites is that the man of Tao stands on what is already moving. So I think that the idea is that we slow down enough and get still enough to where we can see what's already in motion, not think we have to create things. But the river's already flowing. It's already flowing, and all we have to do, in my experience, is step out of the way. So that I can get this little bit of a, of an observer view. And then I can see things totally different than I did when I was down in the middle of it. Yeah. It's row, row your boat gently down the stream. Yeah. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Life is but a dream. You don't row up the stream no. and you could just drift down. But if you're with your, if you're with the Tao, you're moving with it. And if you're living virtuously, you're rowing with it as opposed to against it. But that's the way I think about it. So that song has all new meaning for me now. Yeah. And the reason we rode is to stay in a direction. Still in the downstream. It's it's not inaction. It's right action. Yes. Selfless action. Selfless action. Selfless action. It's, uh, and I was looking at that word actually recently and uh, it's empty action is what I, one thing I came to with that is empty of self. So it's still action. It's just empty of self. It's like we were talking about in the beginning, that if I'm upset because someone's not reacting to how I help them the way I think they should, I am. I still have some surrendering to do because a portion of my reasoning comes from self when I'm giving it. That's my reaction. And it, man, it's a process. Yeah, and, uh, it's nothing that we learn overnight. And my, my experience is that I'm always a percentage of self in those things. I'm never 100%. I don't think operating out of love. I think there's always a little bit to this point there. There's been times that I've taken action. I think that was a hundred percent. And that was times when. After the fact, someone mentioned something to me about it, and I hadn't even thought about expectations of any kind. Yes, that's when the Tao uses us, when love uses us, without sometimes, oftentimes, I think, without our knowledge of it. Yeah. We're not putting up barriers to it. And that's in the, that's me is how do I remove every day? How do I remove the barriers? that I'm putting in the way. Yeah. Do you have any favorite Tao verses that you would like to discuss? Do you have one or two that's your favorites? There's one I was thinking about today. I've got, I've got a different translation here. It's 29 and I'll just read it. And you probably have a version that you might like trying to govern the world with force. I can see this not succeeding. The world is a spiritual thing. It can't be forced. To force it is to harm it. To control it is to lose it. Sometimes things lead. Sometimes they follow. Sometimes they blow hot. 
Sometimes they blow cold. Sometimes they expand. Sometimes they collapse. Sages, therefore, avoid extremes, avoid extravagances, avoid excess. And it reminds me of Proverbs, to everything there is a season. Um, and it also reminds me that I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, and I don't control it. Mm. So that's, for me, they can't. Even within the hula hoop, there's not a lot you can control. Mm. <laughs> in that, that, that small sphere around ourselves. And it's that for me was is, is an important lesson to continue to learn. And doesn't it seem that it does for me, rather than the longer you're at this, it looks like the more things you would be able to control when it's quite the opposite. It's actually diminishing more and more for me. Is, have you seen that to be the case too, Luke? Say that again, buddy. I want to make sure I'm understanding. Okay. When I came in and I realized that there was what was within my hula hoop, let's say, was mm-hmm. what all there was for me to control. But even within that hula hoop, you would think with time and learning how to apply this program to your life and all those things, that the things that you would control would become more and more. Like you're learning to control more things or be right-sized with those things. When in effect, what's really happened is the more I no, the less I control, not the more I control. Yes. It's the um, judo, Dao, judo. When it, things are still coming at you all the time and bad things and annoyances and those kinds of things. But it's if you just let it go with the step out of the way and let it go with the flow, I think is, is how I think about it. So, yeah, there's going to be days that I don't feel good. There's going to be days that I didn't sleep well. There's going to be days that it's raining when I wanted to sunshine. All those days where people are annoying to me, all those kinds of things. And it's whether or not I can let those flow by me and not try to stop them or put up barriers to them. It's can I step out of the way? Can I get out of my own way? The master sees things as they are without trying to control them. That's acceptance. This is the last ends and Stephen Mitchell. She lets them go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. Buddy, that's the other thing, the acceptance. That's one of the things with the Alanine side is that we're not easy at accepting things the way they are. Me and from listening to other people because we want to control it. We want to fix it. We want to make it better. not just for ourselves, we want to make it for other people, or so we tell ourselves. But there's always that selfish thing too to it. But it's not just accepting it. That that was important learning too. Was this whole idea of accepting what is? I've been getting out of the fear of the in the, the denial that comes from fear. I've been working on expectations lately, and really, really digging into how to set goals and how to have things that are important in life, but yet not attach myself to the outcome and how that attachment to the outcome is really what dictates my peace and joy. It's not the outcome itself. Yeah. It's when you um, have an attachment to the outcome is when you have the expectations and then you get the resentment if it doesn't go the way that you wanted it to where things don't happen that way. So, yeah, it's that. And that that was 
part of the thing when I was talking before about if somebody needed something and we were, we're if we're going to take any action, if I'm going to take any action, I have to let go of the outcome. I used to, when I would look for a job or I'd help somebody else look for a job, I was really tied up into to the outcome of it. And I had to realize over time a lot because of Al-Anon, I think, is that you do what you need to do and you do it in a virtuous way in the best way you can. And then you let go of the outcomes. I don't control if somebody chooses me for a job. I don't control if somebody chooses my client for the job. What I, what the client and myself can control is how, if we go things about the right way. So that, that opportunity is there. My, my wife calls it putting the balls in the air. You can't just sit there. You've got to put out the application. You have to put, you have to say to the universe, here I am. What's, how are you going to use me? This is what I have to offer. What are you going to take? And then just let go of it. But there has to be that, there has to be that offer to the world. I don't know how to say it, but it's, it's an action in a way, but it's an action of surrender. Yes. Like throwing the dice. Like throwing the dice. Yeah. You toss the and dice. When I can do that, it goes in a lot better direction. <laughs> and sometimes in a totally different one than what I thought. There are some, there are, um, I left a job because it was un- what was happening was unethical and I couldn't stay in the position and it was a very high position and it would have been the highest that highest position in that state in state government. And I couldn't stay there because of ethical dilemma I had. And so I found an exit and took it. But at the time it was I was really resentful and heart heartbroken. I so this is not the end goal of my career was to reach this certain position, but I had to do what I had to do. And it ended up being so much better. And I'm so grateful. I didn't get that position now because of how things ended up. And it wasn't through actions of my own other than saying, you're okay. Now what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Take it where it's going to go. I'm not trying What's to control up? Lee, what are some books that, as we close out, you have any books that have really spoken to you that are somewhat have a Taoist flair to them that that's enhanced your recovery? Um, there's some books and there's some podcasts that uh, Kent Keith book, Command the Paradoxical Commandment, and uh, it's interesting because he was the story is he was a lay minister or a youth minister at a, at a university and he came up and gave the, these paradoxical commandments in a little speech he gave that wrote him down and gave it a little speech. And then he forgot all about it. Years, decades later, he saw it in print because mother Teresa had it hanging in her office and it was, she was credited with, the content of it, developing it here, it was his. All the so he wrote a little book about the commandments and what they mean to him, and how, in the story about how he kind of lost track of them, and then he <laughs> got to be a big deal when they showed up on Mother Teresa's wall. Uh, those were those are interesting. They do that thing of stripping it away and saying. Love anyway is what I take from it. I'm seeing a PDF of the book here, Lou. I'll put a link in the episode notes, or if anyone wants this PDF, I found it online pretty easy. So I will put that in 
the notes. I guess another one I think I've shared with you before, buddy, is uh, I think it's called Lost Sutras of Jesus. Yes. And that's just, it's retelling some of the parables of Jesus in a different way, in a, through a different lens. And it's from some missionaries that went to China. I don't know, it's like the 1600s, I think. I don't, I may be wrong on that, on the dates, but quite early on, they went to China and they taught, maybe it was even earlier, and they, and I think it was, and they taught about Christianity and they used the language of the people to talk about it and wrote down some of it. And then it was lost in a cave, kind of like the Dag Hammadi at Sea Scrolls. And then it was rediscovered. And now they've got this book out on what those are. And it doesn't talk, it talks about the spirit, it talks about the wind. It was very West, or it's very Eastern in its description of some of the parables of Jesus. And I really liked that because it brought the Tao and the Christian together in a language that, that was very Christian in nature, but had that kind of Eastern flair and Taoist kind of flair to it. Yeah, I've got a I've got a link for that book okay. in the bookstore at buddyc.org. If you go to buddyc.org, there's a resources tab and under that's a bookstore. Uh, Course in Miracles is another one of those. Yes. Yes. Well, um, those are some that come to mind. Right. Um, Any podcasts that you really like that you keep going back to? I do some of Jack Cornfield's um, podcasts. I've got an audio book of some of the lectures of Thomas Merton that I like. Thich Nhat Hanh, some audio books and stuff from Thich Nhat Hanh that I like. Uh, anything that we need to add, Lou? Thank you for your time today, sir. I really appreciate your time, and I'm hoping that for anyone that's coming in, oh, what would you tell the newcomer? Either the newcomer that has a problem alcoholic in their life that they want to help and fix and they want to do the most they can for them. Um, Or if you're new to recovery in general, what would you suggest? Share what I wish was shared with me when I came into Al-Anon, which was give us six weeks. And if you don't start seeing that things are doing better, then we'll leave you to your own misery and you can not come back. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. But so I, I, it's um, it's not an overnight thing, and, but people progress at their own time. You know, keep coming back. So it works if you work it. Yeah, yeah. How about speaking to finding a quote good meeting? I know that can be an issue sometimes. Yeah, I think with finding a good meeting, you know, after you first of all. If you're in a meeting where the focus is on the alcoholic, you're in an Al-Anon meeting where the focus is on the alcoholic and not on the members themselves individually, then that's probably not the right time to be in that meeting. The meetings, meetings change over time and people come and people go and they lose track and get back on track. That'd be one thing I would say to a newcomer. Another thing I would say is that if people are telling you what you should do this, do that, then that's probably not a good time to be in that meeting because it's about what works for us 
not what others should do, but what we sharing what we find works for ourselves, not others. You all stuff that I'm sure is the same in AA, buddy. It, we have to remember that meetings are comprised of people, and sometimes you click with people, and sometimes you don't. So, if you go for AA or Al-Anon, if you're going to a meeting and you said this just doesn't click, before I would say no to whatever type of meeting you're going to, I would go to more meetings and make sure different ones, mm-hmm. make sure that you gave it a, a good shot, that you actually gave it an opportunity because I found in AA it's that way. I've got meetings that speak to me and I've got others that don't. So yeah. I know what meetings to go to and which ones, which ones maybe to pass on. And I know there's less Al-Anon than there is AA. So you might have to do a little more investigation. I know in AA, if I have a choice, I'll go to a meeting that's held at a church other than a clubhouse. Not because the church is affiliated, but mm-hmm. it seems to be the people that are more serious about their recovery seem to go to church meetings some. I've mm-hmm. noticed that, especially closed meetings. If I can find a closed church meeting, I can almost guarantee that's going to be a good meeting. Let me say something about open meetings. And sure, for, me, sure. for me personally, as an Al-Anon member, going to open meetings were great for me because they gave me hope. Because I, our, our son wasn't in a place where we could see much hope. We could see, we could see homelessness and drug addiction and alcohol addiction and possible suicide and all those kinds of things, but we couldn't see hope. But then when we would go to an open meeting, I'd go to an open meeting. I use we a lot because my wife and I did this a lot together. Um, I would find hope there. People who have traveled the same horrible path or worse than what he did and, and were able to survive that and come out and live a, a, a good life in a good way. So that was for new Al-Anon people. After you've been there a while and you're feeling like you can benefit from it, I found that very helpful yeah. as an Al-Anon. And you're talking about an open AA meeting. An open meeting, AA right? meeting, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, guys, the difference between, in my, in my understanding of an open and closed meetings, is that in a closed meeting that is – strictly for the alcoholic themselves. An open meeting is open to others coming that are in support of an alcoholic. So you don't have to be an alcoholic to come to an open meeting. It's not about other addictions. It's still about alcoholism, but you're able to come. And not being an AA member, buddy, I don't know how, if there's different kinds of open meetings or what, but the ones I attended were ones where there was an alcoholic that would get up and tell their story. Mm-hmm. And that's what I found to be useful and helpful and hopeful to me is that this can be overcome, can be addressed. Yeah. And those open meetings, if you find a speaker meeting, that's mm-hmm. normally speaker an meeting. open. Yeah. But there are a lot of open meetings around. So I would definitely, I would approach it the way I try to approach everything. I am powerless over what meetings I need. I am open and available. And if I do that, the rest falls into place. And that is the Tao. That's what the Tao is talking about is it is this path that we can walk that we don't have to push 
that we can just take the next step in the walk. And the way I take that next step is through compassionate living. I get in the car to drive to town. I can do it in a way that's compassionate and open hearted, or I can do it in a way that's ill and aggravating, get out of my way. I can do either one and do the same task. Uh, yeah, it's a way of life, definitely. Lou, thank you for being with us today, and I hope to see you soon in a meeting. You will. Thank you, buddy. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.